Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon featuring Michael Alago. He is, of course, known for having signed Metallica. And the argument can be made that without Michael Alago, there is no Metallica. So, important person in the, uh, in the history of rock. He has a, a new book out called I Am Michael Alago, Breathing Music, Signing Metallica, and beating death. So there you go. So do check out I Am Michael Alago, Breathing Music, Signing Metallica, and Beating Death. It is available now. And uh, he was also the subject of a documentary, which at least in Canada you can see on Netflix. I'm assuming in the States you can see it on Netflix as well, called Who the F- is Michael Alago? Uh, very interesting um, documentary. So, so check all that stuff out. And, and now for the good news. Uh, you know, I've, I've decided I'm going to uh, limit the amount of shows, you know, bring it down instead of three, four a week while we're on this lockdown, get it back to uh, one or two a week. And I have to say it has uh, re-energized and recharged me. I, I started getting a little too, um, uh, I don't want to be dramatic, but beaten down of always being under the hood, you know, because you got to get in here and get the headphones on, and then you do the interview, and you do the research, and then you put it up, and then you edit it. Yeah, I know, cry me a river, wah, 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 first world problems, I know. But just uh, having like three or four days of, or a few days of just waking up and just watching TV all morning has has done me the world of good. So uh, we will uh, we will stay consistent, and we will stay uh, on track, um, and uh, there you go. Um, so, hey, let us get over to the one, the only, Michael Alago. We are uh, speaking with a music executive, uh, Michael Alago. He, of course, starred in his own documentary, Who the Fuck is That Guy? The Fabulous Journey of Michael Alago, but now he has got a book called I Am Michael Alago. And as we say in uh, Montreal, bonjour, how are you, Michael? Uh, greetings from New York City in my self-quarantine Chelsea apartment. I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Thank you. Yes. So, all right. So I want to get into the into the movie and the book. But since you mentioned the quarantine, let me start there just re- real, real quick. Sure. Um, you know, with this happening and all the shows being canceled one after the other, all the tours being canceled one after the other, whether it's Metallica or Guns N' Roses or The Who or Elton sure. John. whoever. Where do you think we are going to be going in the end of 2020 and the end of 2021? Because as Doc McGee was telling me the other day, it's he said to me, he said, Mitch, it's not like we're all just going to rebook these shows. Now we all have to fight for the same venues with the baseball and the basketball and the hockey and the soccer in different countries. Is is it going to be a nightmare moving forward? Are we going to see prices come down? Or, or are people just going to be so crazy for entertainment that, it, you know, can we maintain this current sort of $150, $200 ticket price uh, area that we're in? Sure. Um, well, keep in mind, this is only one person's opinion, my own. Um, I can't predict anything. Uh, I understand why all these t- tours globally were canceled, of course. Um, I don't know. We don't know when everything is going to be back to quote unquote normal. So I think by the time it is okayed 
to go back and be back in the real world, uh, I think people will be starving and happy that tours are happening again, that the theater is going to be happening, that museums are going to open again, um, because it's almost not natural for us to be in quarantine, you know? Um, for me, I'm liking my solitude a little too much, but I'm grateful that uh, for technology, and I've been FaceTiming friends of mine so I can see their wonderful faces. Um, but other than that, that's the best answer I could give you. Yeah, and that's a good one. So, all right, let's get into uh, I Am Michael Alago. Now, you, sure. ha- you, you, of course, did the documentary. Talk to me about this book in terms of for those people that have seen the documentary, what different insight does it offer? Is it an addendum to? Is it sort of the cliff notes of the, of the movie? Or is it something completely different for them to enjoy? Sure. Well, you know, the documentary, Who the Fuck Is That Guy, is on Netflix and on Amazon Prime. Um, and uh, the reason the book is out is because I got a small book deal with the company called Backbeat Books. They saw the movie, they liked it, and they wanted to know if I had more stories. Being an, an A&R executive for 25 years, I had lots of stories. So in the film, you know, the film is like 80 minutes, and you can't just tell every single thing. So there are the high moments, very low moments. Um, there are the wonderful artists that I had the privilege of working with in the film. Uh, we, we talk about music, addiction, recovery, health issues, and survival. Now, the book takes that just to another level. There are more stories that people have not heard. Uh, I go more in depth with the music business, with the addiction, with the recovery, and with thriving in my life in 2020. So um, it's kind of, I guess you could say it's a companion piece, but it's, it's still very different than the movie. But it's the same life, only in um, a deeper level. I went deeper because I could in the written page than in the film. Right. And, and so let me, let me get started with some of the, uh, the details in the book. Uh, the, one of the things that stands out here is because, you know, back in 1979, I went to see Kiss for the first time, and that was my first concert, <laughs> and it changed everything, right? You know, they were in of Montreal, and, and you see the sounds and the lights, and it, it's not a vinyl record, right? Uh, you write in the book that you went to see your first concert in 1973, and it was Alice Cooper. Talk to me about that moment a little bit, and and that sort of epiphany that you have, where you see this guy on the stage, and you see the guillotine, and you see Neil Smith and and Michael Bruce, and the whole thing, and your brain just goes, "Yeah, that's for me." Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, well, you know, like I say in the book. I feel like I came out of the womb loving music. Uh, I don't remember loving anything like that. I would watch um, American television shows that were music oriented, like uh, Don Kirshner's Midnight Special and Dick Clark's American Bandstand. And those specific shows had a wide variety of artists on them. So let's say, well, we could talk, we're in 1973. My cousin Carol Ann has a boyfriend, as we affectionately called him, Manny the Greek from Astoria. <laughs> and uh, that was his whole name <laughs> for us. And uh, he had tickets for Alice Cooper. I had seen Alice on, uh, on another TV show. Um, 
It was like late night. It was called In Concert. And I saw the show on TV and I was just drawn to the theatricality of it all and the great songs. So at 13 years old, when I heard about these tickets, I was like, I got to go. Now, I had never been to a concert before. Uh, Madison Square Garden is like an 18,000-seater. This was Alice Cooper's last show of the tour, of the Billion Dollar Babies tour. And um, we were, I was riveted. You know, the, sh- the lights go down, the music starts, they open up with Hello, Hooray. And uh, I, I was enthralled. I was in heaven. I loved every single thing about the performance. Of course, you know, the guillotine, the snake, the theatricality, you know, his glam, glamorous look. Um, extraordinary band, big fan of Michael Bruce. Um, so that was the beginning of knowing that there was a great big world out there of music that I wanted to explore. And so right after that, I got to see Lou Reed. I got to see Todd Rundgren. I got to see uh, uh, all sorts of different types of artists. Um, yeah. So I think that answers your question. It, it does. And, and uh, Please. You, you know, I feel the same uh, thinking back, I was listening to you and I'm thinking, man, that's how I felt when I saw Kiss the first time. You know, you just get it. It's, oh, man, yes. It's that magic, right? Now, all right, so I'm going to ask you this because I'm in Montreal and you're in New York City. And of course, I've always said, hey, Montreal fans are some of the best and it's some of the greatest shows. But what was that like at that time going to Madison Square Garden show after show, being in New York show after show? Because there's got to be, I mean, it's venerable. It's not just some building, right? It's not, and seeing shows. Oh, not at all. You know, I was, I was, I was a teenager. I was a young teenager, 13, 14, 15, 16 years old. All I cared about was the music. I was happy that my mom let me take the train from Brooklyn into Manhattan. And I went crazy. You know, I was thrilled that I could afford that $7.50 ticket. Uh, and um, like I said, it opened up a great big world for me because I was curious. All I cared about was music. And I managed to find wherever the music was in Manhattan. Now, at one point, I did find a publication called The Village Voice that came out every week. It listed music, art, theater, porn, and politics. I could have cared less about the politics part being a teenager, but I did love the porn, the art, the music, and the theater part. So that also helped me to figure out and navigate music downtown New York and all of the other bigger venues like Madison Square Garden. So once I knew all that existed, I just went crazy. And I was out every night. As you know, if you know, people saw my documentary and now reading the book, which there are just some really great, fun stories in there. They're absolutely great stories. Uh, I do want to talk about one of the chapters in the book. In fact, we're going to go through sure. a few of these chapters. Uh, mm-hmm. The first one being your time at the Ritz. Now, you look back in the history of New York and you go, oh, CBGBs, oh, Max's Kansas City, oh, Yes. You know, there's these names that come up, and then and, and the Ritz eventually comes up, but sort of later on. 
Uh, talk to me about that club and working there and some of the, the bands you got to see. I mean, you know, Duran Duran recorded there. Um, Speak of the Devil by Ozzy Osbourne was recorded there. You know, a bunch of great iconic pieces in music were all from that Ritz. Talk to me about coming in there as a young kid. I, I, how sure. old were you? You were, you were young, I guess, 19 or 20? Sure. Uh-huh. Yes, I was. Um, well, like I mentioned, music was the only thing I cared about. Uh, as a young kid, after seeing all these shows, either live or on TV, I thought, well, I want to be in the music business. But I thought to myself, what does that mean now? for a 19-year-old who doesn't play an instrument, but I just love music. So it's 19, the beginning of 1980, and it's also the beginning of MTV, very important. Uh, and I'm going to the School of Visual Arts. I'm working at a pharmacy. I'm taking lunch one day, and I walk down East 11th Street in the East Village. I see a beautiful building. It has uh, It's an art deco building. The architecture was amazing. And there was a little sign on a white piece of paper that I think either said uh, rock club or video club opening. And I thought, well, what is video club? It sounds very interesting to me. So I went in, I'm looking around this beautiful empty space. And um, there was a man in the balcony, uh, as I refer to him as the Wizard of Oz. And he's like, kid, what do you want? We're not open. And I was like, Oh my God, this is a beautiful building. Video club. I don't know. I like a job here. And he said, would you have a resume? I said, I do not. I go to the school of visual arts and I um, work in a pharmacy. Well, I don't know. He thought there was some humor in that. So he called me up to his office and we started talking. His name was Jerry Grant. I didn't realize because I didn't know who he his history, that he started the Electric Circus Nightclub in the 1960s. He worked with Sam Cooke, Muhammad Ali. He discovered Carly Simon and the Voices of East Harlem. Um, he was this incredible entrepreneur. We start talking. We start talking about everything from the Great American Songbook to present-day pop music, what's happening in the New York underground scene. And he said, you know what? I like you. I'm going to give you a job. You're going to open my mail. You're going to get my lunch and you're going to answer my phone. And I was in like a bit of shake. And I thought in my head, oh my God, I think I'm in the music business. So that was the beginning for me, a 19 year old starting at a nightclub. And um, what did I know? So I did what I was told, but I shared a little corner of Jerry's office and I would listen how he spoke to booking agents every day to, to book entertainment there that held in a room, excuse me, that held about 1,500 people or so. Um, so I was a sponge. I wanted to learn, and I did. I learned quickly. At some point, I was the assistant music director, and I was there for three years, from 1980 to 1983. We had extraordinary shows there. Ozzy, Joan Jett, and the Blackhearts. We had five nights of the return of Tina Turner, who had not been around for many years. Um, we had... Uh, you had the riot. The early day. Well, yes, we had <laughs> Prince for a couple of nights there. And, it, and, and in May of 1981, I had a show booked, Bow Wow Wow, uh, for two nights, completely sold out. People, you know, people are waiting to see this band. And what do they do? They cancel. Malcolm McLaren called me and said, we're not coming. 
Annabella's mother doesn't want her to travel. She's underage. And I was like, Malcolm, when you booked this, we knew she was underage. So I'll pay for the ticket for her mother to come with all of you. He said, well, we're not coming. And I thought, oh, well, what's going to happen now? And I said, well, return the 50% deposit. I don't remember if he did or not. He probably did not, knowing Malcolm McLaren. So I had to scramble fast. I had to think fast. And um, I don't remember how I knew that Public Image Limited were in town up at Liz Rosenberg's office at Warner Brothers. They were doing, um, it was a press junket for their record Flowers of Romance. So I just took it upon myself to call her office. I had never met John Lydon before. And I'm now on, the, on a speakerphone in Liz's office with those people, with Public Image Limited, with Jeanette. Keith and John. I told them my predicament. They said, we don't have instruments. We're, we're just here to do a press junket. I convinced them. I sent a car up to pick them up. I convinced them to come to my office. So me, Jerry, and Danny Fields, who was our publicist at the time, um, just talked to them about this. How, what, what kind of show could they do? They agreed to do the show. Uh, in parentheses, um, I think we rented a Prophet 5 keyboard for Keith Levine to a program like, you know, 45, 50 minutes worth of music into the Prophet 5. The night comes, you know, the Ritz was beginning to get known as the big nightclub in New York. We had like a 30 foot white screen in front of the stage that was showing all the videos that all the record companies were doing. Because remember, now MTV. MTV started with a bang. So we wanted to be part of that video age as well. The show starts. Um, you hear the opening of the song, Flowers of Romance. The band is behind the screen. Um, these, these white lights are just shining on the screen. So all you see are black silhouette images behind behind the, uh, the screen and i just thought it looked beautiful well nobody cared about performance art nobody cared in the audience about like what the f was going on they wanted to see john lyden and hear john lyden be a little rotten you know um they wanted rock and roll and when john started taunting the audience about how he was not coming out from behind the screen well that's when all hell broke loose. Chairs were flying off the balcony, uh, beer bottles, cans, everything was getting thrown 15, 18 minutes into the show. It was mayhem. We had to close down the event because I didn't want people getting hurt. It was 1980 and security didn't deal with young people as good as they do perhaps these days. Um, so in my crazy mind, I wanted them to come back the next day to do something different. I think the next night, all we had was a $2.50 entrance fee for like a video night. But that show was historic. It was a shot heard around the world. The next morning, it was on the cover of, of a lot of newspapers here in the States, but it was definitely on the cover and featured in Sound, Melody Maker, Musical Express in London. And um, here we are. Everybody still wants to talk about that 1981 show. It was extraordinary. <laughs> it was extraordinary. Not what, I intended, not what I intended it to be, but that's what happened. But that also cemented the beginning of my 39-year friendship with John Lydon. Yeah, it was a great it, – it, 
it's one of the you, you can't buy PR like that. Let's put it that way. But but you did Heck in, no. In that answer, you did of course mention uh, Tina Turner. So so let me let me just go back to some of these. You know, U two makes their U.S. debut at the Ritz. Duran uh, Duran correct. correct when Duran Duran starts off young and early, they come and play the Ritz. Ozzy, like we said before, does the speaker. Uh, and of course, Tina Turner does her her comeback right before MTV and and all you know, Private Dancer and all that stuff. She had to come back from basically having been forgotten. As the Booker, what was sort of the mentality or, or the thought behind? Because you look at, at at clubs now, and now you have a rock club, and you have a dance club, and you have a country club, and you have a Right. An EDM club. What's your, what's your question? What was the question? Well, the question is, is, is what was sort of the, Attraction? your thought, no, but your thought oh. in, in booking bands, because you didn't just get all the U2 kinds of bands. You didn't just get all the Duran Duran. There really was a wide variety between Tina Turner, Duran Duran, and, and, and Ozzy, and, and, you know, Parliament, uh, Funkadelic, and all these oh, other that's ones. That's right. That's right. Uh, Simple Minds played there. Yeah. Uh, so, so. Oh, I adore. Well, listen, Jerry Brandt was very well known at that point in time in the music business. He had major connections. So, and, and the Ritz being really the only rock club that was of that size that we that featured that big video screen. So because of Jerry's connection, we got that wide variety of artists to play there. You know, why, why would you want to just say, Oh, we're only doing heavy metal or only doing top 40 acts. That'd be shooting yourself in the leg. So, you know, we welcomed the variety from black flag to Tina Turner, to Ozzy, to pill, to Kid Creole and the Coconuts. I mean, that that's what a, a great venue is about. A wide variety of artists, so people know they can come and be entertained any night, every night of the week, and it's always a different uh, kind of an act. And that's, the, that's I think, what, what makes it very intriguing. And I'm going to ask you one more thing, uh, because you were there for the Aussie Speak of the Devil, and Brad Gillis is a friend of mine. I'll, I'm going to text him after here and tell him that we that we spoke. But talk to me a little bit about that evening and and having Ozzy come in with this new lineup with the new guitarist and laying down what ends up being one of the most classic live albums of all heavy metal history. Sure, I I, can't, I have to tell you I can't tell you much about that evening. Uh, I don't remember much of it. Um, so I think you're just going to have to move on with that question. Of course, we all know what it turned out to be exactly what you said. But for me to give you details. I couldn't do that, and I don't want to kind of make up something Darn that it. Uh, I think I remember because it's just not good for the interview. But it, is, it was a historic time there with him at the Ritz. You know, and I only got to meet him many years later when um, I was at Geffen Records and we were doing a Beavis and Butthead soundtrack, and there was a track that he was working on with Moby called Walk on Water. And things weren't working out. And I had to come into the studio to see their uh, engineer, Jason Cassaro, and uh, help fix the whole thing. So my first introduction to him was when I entered the studio, he looks at me and he said, oh, so you're the man who's going to turn shit into ice cream. Please take my seat. And he got up and walked out of the studio. 
Now, that was not really the way I wanted to meet Ozzy Osbourne, but uh, that's how it was. And after that, I got to shake hands with him and say hello once or twice. But uh, that was a, it was a, that was a weird hello, period. And, and yeah, and Walk on Water, I think that's the one with Joe Holmes on it, the only song that he ever recorded with Ozzy, if I'm not mistaken. Might be. Don't remember. Uh, and it's too bad that you don't remember the uh, the story a bit more. I was hoping to get some uh, some more details. But all right, let me move over to to your time at Electra Records, which is uh, chronicled in the book. Um, the 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 label at that time was sort of reorganizing and 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 you know changing some of the the members on the deck. Uh, talk to me about putting that together and being part of that because Electra Records ends up being one of the greatest record labels through the 80s. Uh, talk to me about that interview with Bob Krasnow and, and coming sure. in. Uh, go ahead. Mm-hmm. So it's 1983. I've been at the Ritz three years. I know and feel that there's more out there. I was uh, going out with somebody named Mitchell Krasnow, Bob's son, and he said, Michael, you know, I think you should meet my dad. Um Electra Records was in the crapper at that time, previous management. It just wasn't happening anymore. But uh, I'm going to backtrack a little. Keep in mind, uh, Jack Holzman started that label. And, you know, it was it had already been a historic label with, with people like the Stooges, the MC5, the Doors. Then David Geffen comes in with his, with his label. Um, so it had such a beautiful variety of artists on that label fast forward back to the 80s wasn't what it used to be so bob krasnow leaves warner brothers and is going to revamp electra he is the chairman of the company mitchell tells his dad about me so his dad of course wants to meet me he's heard about me from the ritz so I get to uh, Time Warner at 70. Oh, no, no, we weren't at 75 Rock then. We were in the Rolex building, I believe, at 665 Fifth Avenue. And I'm a nervous wreck. You know, meeting somebody like Bob, who also has a bit of a big history behind him. And um, so we get there and we have this meeting. And I have the same, like almost the same conversation with Bob that I had with Jerry Brandt. It was about music. It was about all kinds of music. It was about from music back in the day to present day music. He liked that I knew about all of these types of artists. Um, There was an added bonus to my conversation with Bob. I love art as well. And in New York, there was a thriving art scene happening in the East Village that Bob also loved. Bob had art on the walls already at the new Electra offices. And I loved people like Jean-Michel Basquiat, Keith Haring, Robert Longo, um, and Richard Hamilton, and people who were coming up then. So we talked about those artists as well. Um, I don't know. The hour is up. We shake hands. He said, I'll call you. Two weeks later, I got a call. He said, Michael, it's Bob Krasnow. And you know what? I liked our interview, and I'm going to give you a job. You're going to be in the A&R department. I was thrilled. Now, I had no idea what the heck A&R meant. So I called some friends of mine. They laughed in my face. And uh, I very soon found out that, that meant artist in repertoire. In retrospect, in talking to you today, A&R, the A&R department is the most important department at a record company. If you do not have great artists 
and you do not make great records that sell, then you're out of a job. So, you know, I lo- also I learned my A&R job very quickly. And what I also realized was I knew how to spot greatness. Not good, but great. Because soon into my job at Electra, I was listening to boxes of cassettes and independent vinyl and managers, lawyers, public publicity people, publishers were coming to see me because I had the next big thing. Listen, it is few and far between that there's greatness out there in my mind. So, um, well, okay, so you know, but I want to ask you about that. How do you spot greatness? Because I, I, as a fan or as a rock reporter, will look at a band like a Madonna, which is something I don't buy, and I go, but you know what? I can I can respect the talent there, and I can look at a Garth Brooks, and I'm not a country fan. I go, I can respect the talent there because they're at, at the top of their game for what they do. How yeah. do you spot somebody? If I come to you, Mitch Lafon, with a demo. Now, don't worry, I don't have a demo, but let's let's pretend. What would you be looking for? Is it just a feeling you, you put on the tape and you go, "Wow, that's great," or do you go, mm, "Okay"? I could move well, sure. this guy. Of course, we're now listening to the music together. I want to feel something. So I'm listening how the artist, how the group is performing their songs. I want to know what they're singing about. I want to know if these people, uh, lyrics perhaps have universal appeal. So the next step for me is, you know, I, uh, if I like what you're playing me, I'll listen to, you know, five, six, seven, eight songs. If you, one knows or feels if something is for you or not. I always operated on a very personal level. I never cared what other people liked or said it was going to be the next big thing. I, I just, I worked in my own space and time. And um, did, so. Did image yeah. have anything to do with it? Would you look at a, at a, at a whatever, sure. a Cindy Lauper and right. say. Right, you'd come with an eight by 10 picture. Okay. Maybe you'd have a, maybe you'd have a little press kit. Maybe you'd have lyrics. You'd have a cassette with you or an independent piece of vinyl, and all of that stuff that I'm looking at has to speak to me. And like I said, I have to feel the music. I have to, for me, like what I'm hearing that you're singing about. And then the next step is to go see an artist live. Live tells you a lot. It speaks volumes. It speaks about. Is this band any good on stage? How do they relate to the audience and how does the audience relate to them? Who, you know, I'm going to just fast forward here. Metallica. There is no one like James Hetfield. Prior to me signing them, I saw them twice and I thought, man, this guy is a ringleader on stage. He is filled with charm rough charm back then and a lot of piss and vinegar and charismatic. He knew even in the early days how to hold an audience in the palm of his hand and whip the entire crowd into a frenzy. And that's what I was after. Okay. So let's, let's, let, let, let me back it up for a second. Let's go to the ballroom, the Roseland ballroom in 1984. Sure. You, Summer you, 1984, yeah. August. You, which is a great month because I'm born in August. We love that. There uh, you go. Happy birthday. <laughs> you but you see Anthrax come out and they do their set and you go, okay, that's good. I love that. And then Metallica hits the stage and you're just like, oh, all right. Now I got to yes. go sign these guys. And, and right. I don't want to say you poached them, but you went, you, you said, I don't fucking care if they're signed to that guys. I need, 
Well, well you know, I was not uh, unsympathetic right. to where the label that they were at. So now we're going to backtrack just for one minute. I, I live, I'm still living in Brooklyn. It's 1982, and me and my friend Phil Cavano, who was later in Monster Magnet, <clears throat> excuse me, walk over to Lamore in Brooklyn, and we see Metallica. They're friggin' fabulous. Wow. Okay, I go home. Um, I see them in 1983 at the beginning of my job at Electra, I was going to the West coast to do some business. I knew they were playing the stone at that same time. It was a confluence of many things happening for me in my early days. You know, I had met Johnny Z at Megaforce. Uh, they were a little fantastic independent label, but not with, with, with not no real funds to take bands to the next level. So um, at the Stone in San Francisco, after the show, I get lost my business card. He looks at me like, you're a record executive. He's, remember, if they're 21, 22, I'm 23 years old in, 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 in a Misfits t-shirt and jeans. And yes, indeed, I was the man from Electra. So I give him my card. We don't talk. He calls me the beginning of 84, wants to know, am I still interested in the band? And I was like, heck yeah, I'm interested in the band. So now we're fast forwarding. Uh, Roseland, August 84. It's a Megaforce event evening. It is, um, let's see, it is uh, Raven and Metallica in the middle. And I think Anthrax might have closed the show or the other way around. I just remember Metallica were in the middle of the set. Well, it's sold out. Over 3,000 people. The, the place stinks of beer and smoke. And it was just, and it, you could feel when there is an incredible electricity in the air. Like you were about to experience the band that the underground metal scene had been talking about. Their cassette had been traded. Flyers were all over the place. And now, Metallica. They blew the roof off the damn place. They ripped the audience apart. It blew everybody's mind. It was extraordinary. And it was extraordinary because at this point in time, they've been playing for since, what, 82 or something like that? Um, they were young people who were always focused. Even when people called them alcoholica, they knew and they were very determined to make it. And that night, they were absolutely brilliant. I go backstage. I start chatting with them. I'm definitely a little drunk. All the other guys want to know who the who the f is that guy. And uh, Lars is like, guys, this is Michael Alago from Electra. We chatted for a long time. The next day, I had them up to my office in the conference room. Uh, I tell this story all the time. It's in the movie. It's in the book. Um, I order beer and Chinese food. We start talking about the history of Electra. Uh, we distributed this esoteric label called Nunsuch, and Cliff Burton wanted all the Nunsuch records, um, which I thought was funny, but I gave him as much as I could give him, a box of Nunsuch records. And, um, you know, Bob Krasnow, the chairman, came in and said, you know, saw you guys last night, fantastic. And if Michael wants you here, we want you here. And uh, so, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, our business affairs department started talking to Megaforce business affairs department. A deal was struck and everybody walked away financially satisfied. And the short version of that is the rest is history. It really is. Okay. So, but, but I do want to ask you some, some other stuff quickly about Metallica because, you know, Ride the Lightning comes out in uh, 84. And then of course, Master of Puppets and Justice for All. And, and before you mentioned that, MTV was really important, you know, in the early 80s. 
but the band doesn't make videos, not until one. Sure. Sure. As an executive at Electra, and you, you, you put out Ride the Lightning, do you not go to the band and say, hey, how about a video for whatever, you know, uh, for whom the bell tolls or fade to black? Or, or just whatever, sure. Yeah, like, what, what was um, the yeah, resistance sure, from the band? I'm sure, and... I'm sure the powers that be did put a bit, a bit of pressure on me to have the band make a video. <laughs> then they wanted to know, was there anything I could edit? <laughs> oh boy, bad word. Edit from the record, from a song to get on the radio. So at one of the first marketing meetings, I had to let everyone know, and Bob made it mandatory that everyone go see Metallica live. This was not a this was not a corporate band. They didn't fit into a mold. This was something new happening in heavy metal. So um, you had to go see them live. Uh, once everybody saw them live and was so convinced. We stopped hawking them about making a video. We knew this was not about the radio. So we, we just poured lots of money into advertisement and tour support because we were all that confident that once you saw Metallica live, you, you became a fan, you became a believer, a supporter, whatever you'd like to call them. And that's how you know, we marketed and promoted them. They were on the road. They just kept themselves out there so that everyone could see what the underground was talking about. But was was it, I mean, I, I mean, I agree with you. Uh, Metallica Live, even in 2020, is still the greatest thing you can see. But was it difficult, though, to, to, to build that brand, or was it just so... No, they were building that brand themselves okay. on their own by playing out there. And it's just one of those things that happen not very often, that in that early germ seed of a band happening, they just happened to capture the ears of the young hard rock, heavy metal listener. So when somebody becomes the talk of a town, so to speak, everybody wants to see them. They created their own underground. They created that excitement. So like I said, for a major corporation, what we did was we financially supported them so they could just go live on the road. And that's what's kind of built, kept building the audience. And that's what started the record sales. And again, after that, the rest is history. Yeah, it really, so it I really, hope I answered your question. You, you did. And it, it really is. And it, it's just interesting because when I do these interviews and I talk to yes. whoever, whether it's Jim Kurt, Simple Minds, or whether it's Billy Idol, whoever... They always go, oh, man, if it wasn't for MTV, I don't know if I'd be here today. And then you talk about Metallica and they're like, thank God we didn't do MTV. <laughs> oh, of course. You know? But, you know, keep in mind, all of those artists, maybe, not maybe, all of those top 40 pop and rock artists depended them, the, the, the life of their records depended on major radio airplay. It depended on how many times a day MTV is going to play your video. So it was a different world back then, which had nothing to do with Metallica in the early days right. at all, period. And, and I think it, it, it almost harkens back to the early days of Kiss with the makeup, whereas not seeing them created a mystique because, you know, you could go to MTV and say, well, there's Cyndi Lauper, I know, okay, I, I get what she's doing. But you couldn't get what Metallica were doing unless you bought a ticket and went to the show. So they created a mystique. Absolutely. 
right? Which which was which was brilliant. So let me let me fast forward to twenty twenty. We have a lot of bands out there that because you, you talk about how important live shows are. The live shows aren't very live showish anymore. We've got all kinds of tracks running. We've got all kinds of tape running. I even had a band. I was at Soundcheck, and they were running uh, a crowd swell. They were testing out the crowd swell. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? We're we're, we're now pumping in crowd swell. Give me a. I'm not going to say who the band is, but doesn't matter. But have we? Yeah, it doesn't matter at all. Have we? Right. Have we lost? what a live show is supposed to be because it's supposed to have a mistake there's supposed to be feedback there's supposed to be a bum note that's that's sort of part okay. of part so let's let's focus it uh because a lot of my uh professional history in the music business had to do with hard rock and heavy metal bands so present day 2020 no the live show, you know when a band goes out there they have to put their best foot forward each and every time to impress their audience, to buy their T-shirt, their album, to to have people talk about you. So all that live stuff happens in a variety of forms, and sometimes it's very raw, sometimes it's very polished, but very specific to hard rock and metal. You know, a show is a show, and you have to impress people. And yes, if you're any good at all, People are going to pick you out because you are that charismatic on stage. I come back to that word because that word is very important. You can't just be a wallflower and play up there. The audience has to love what you're doing. You have to love your audience. And that's what makes for great artistry live. You know, in 2020, I'm still going out there. I don't officially work for record companies anymore, but I'm going out there all the time still seeing bands. There's a bar in Brooklyn called St. Vitus that has extraordinary bands play there. You know, I wanted to recently go see Rotting Christ uh, from Greece, but coronavirus, so everybody's pushing back their tours. Um, But I did recently get to see Zombie Apocalypse there. Um, I saw a band called Issa Coven, who I fell in love with, and um, they only had an independent release out, so I said, I'm going to help you. I send their CD out uh, to 10 independent labels. Nine of them didn't want to be bothered because they're like, Michael, the band is great. They have no numbers. And you know me, that pisses me off because it's all about numbers. Numbers don't tell you how talented somebody is. But my Gitter over at Century Media took a chance and uh, signed them. So we have a record out, uh, Easter Kevin, called Everything is Temporary Except Suffering. We got one of our favorite producers, Eric Rattan, who was in Morbid Angel, to produce and mix the record. And uh, so I'm just still out there, helping people. full speed ahead, yep. going to see live artists. And a live show is very important. And and I'm going to I'm gonna just start to quickly tie it into what I was saying at the beginning. And, and with social media and the ticket prices and stuff, I think... You know, with, with with tickets being at 150, 200 bucks and stuff, you, you're going to have to enhance it a bit with a little bit of vocal trickery or, or some tapes because if you don't, it's going to end up on Twitter and it's going to end up on Facebook and it's going to say, see, look at this band. They fucking suck. Don't go see them. And you can't risk that anymore. So you you have to be I know, perfect. You're talking about artists that are already playing right. large venues. If you're not great, you ain't playing those venues. So I don't know what kind of trickery is in there to begin with. So I, 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 maybe I'm not hearing you correctly. 
Well, uh, yeah. Well, I was just talking about some of the larger artists now where, uh, you know, they they run a, a – they're almost lip-syncing, you know. It, it's just – Sure. If you're talking about Top 40, if you're talking about things, those type of artists wanting everything to be pristine, then sure, there are tapes running. There are background vocals being played while the singer – sings their lead vocal it's the way of the world now you either buy into that kind of music or you don't buy into that kind of music i still want to go see Def leopard live i still want to go see metallica live and uh yeah there's no trickery there it is what it is fantastic all all my favorite bands and i just hope that stadium tour uh, doesn't end up getting uh canceled and uh I know that you have to go in, in here in five minutes, so let me just uh, wrap up and remind the folks, I am Michael Alago. The book is out now. The movie Who the Fuck Is That Guy is on Netflix. It is an absolute recommended movie. No, it's oh, not a coronavirus vi- recommended movie. It's recommended even when life goes back to normal. It's that good. Um, sure. And, and, and if people want to look it up just because... Uh, um, it helps when you know that it's called Who the Fuck Is That Guy? The Fabulous Journey of Michael Alago. It's on Netflix and Amazon Prime Video right now. The book is I Am Michael Alago, Breathing Music, Signing Metallica, Beating Death, Subtitle. And you can purchase that on Amazon.com right now. From the, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for giving us Metallica. And uh, unless I'm mistaken, you had a hand in the cars too as well, right? I did not. Did not, but Electra did. That is correct. Well, 1979, thank- they were signed to Electra. Oh, that's right. It's before. And it became huge, incredible songs, fabulous artists. But, uh, but thank you for everything you've done, and thank you for the great movie. And folks, do get this book. It is a compelling, compelling read. And as we say in Montreal, Michael, merci beaucoup. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you very much. I'm glad that we talked. And uh, everybody out there, take good care, be safe, and keep rocking and rolling, man. That's the, that's the only thing you can ask for, rock and roll. Thank you, sir. Exactly. Cheers. Okay, bye-bye. This has been Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. For more exclusive content and interviews, subscribe on iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, on YouTube, and many more. Follow Mitch on all the socials, especially Twitter, at Mitch LaFon, and on Instagram, at Mitch underscore LaFon. Get your Mitch merch now at loudtracks.com slash Mitch.